morning. We'd like to welcome you to church this morning. Please stand and join us as we begin our service of worship by singing our praises to God together. So few words. 
to invite the ushers forward to assist us as we give back to God.
praying together. If you'd like to come and use the altar rail as a place where you offer your prayers, please come and join me. Father, we thank you for Jesus. Thank you that Jesus is coming to the world to save sinners. And that would be us. To set us free from the chains and the bondage of sin to give us life. And we come now in adoration and thanksgiving and praise for who you are and what you've done and to lay before you the burdens of our hearts and our souls. Father, we pray today for the Roskies in the time of grief and sorrow as well as the family and friends of Priscilla Waltz. Help them to know that you are with them, that you are ministering your grace and mercy to them. We pray that you will comfort each of their grieving hearts. May your grace rest powerfully and gently upon them. Father, we pray that you will heal all of the diseases and struggles and burdens that we have and others connected to us have as we live in this fallen, broken world with fallen, broken bodies. 
We pray especially today for Eula Avery, Jill Tyson, Vesta Mullen, Bruce Brenneman, Beverett, Micah Christensen, Linda Roth, Dick Gould, Tim Nichols, Isla Shea, Edna Howard, Crystal Blake, Emily Crickler, and for others who are on our hearts and minds today. We pray that you will pour out your healing grace upon each one. We continue to pray for all who are still living with the effects of the Ebola virus. It's been going on a long time, and there's been so much death and devastation and pain. And we ask, Father, that you will bring an end to the suffering, bring an end to the infection. And we pray especially for the so many people who have endured so much. We pray for your healing grace upon them. We pray for our brothers and sisters in Syria who are asking that you would make their country a place where there is no more war. They've lived with it so long, and, the, and quite frankly, the, the future does not look bright. But we pray that you will, you will hear their prayers and ours to bring peace. We pray, Lord, that you will do the miraculous that you alone can do, and give us faith to believe the miraculous. We pray for your church in this place and in other places of the world where they face persecution and opposition. And Father, we ask that you will give your people the ability to overcome that opposition, not by being able to to fight, but by being willing and able to surrender and to love that that even opponents would see you in your children and their hearts would be changed we pray that you'd help us to live this way as well with whatever opposition and difficulties we face Father, open our eyes to your presence with us. Give us grace to continue to trust you. We pray all of this through the mercy of Jesus Christ who goes to the cross for us to redeem us, to set us free, to give us life. Fill us with his peace. We offer our prayers in his name. Amen. Our scripture reading for today is Mark 14, verses 32 to 42. Please stand for the reading of the gospel. They went to a place called Gethsemane, and Jesus said to his disciples, Sit here while I pray. He took Peter, James, and John along with him, and he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, he said to them. Stay here and keep watch. Going a little farther, he fell to the ground and prayed that if possible, the hour might pass from him. Abba, Father, he said, Everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Simon, he said to Peter, are you asleep? Couldn't you keep watch for one hour? Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Once more he went away and prayed the same thing. When he came back, he again found them sleeping, because their eyes were heavy. They did not know what to say to him. 
Returning the third time, he said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Enough! The hour has come. Look, the Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Rise! Let's go! Here comes my betrayer. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Share a word of greeting with one another before you uh, take your seats. If someone were to ask you, what's the purpose of prayer? What would you say? Why do we pray? What's, what are we trying to accomplish? What's the purpose of that? Is it to, to convince God to do something we want? Is the purpose of prayer to see God change something? Is the purpose of prayer to fix something that's broken? In in one sense, yes. All of those things are a part of prayer. And I think we, we need to understand that. And we need to be reminded of that. That God does change things when we pray. God does things that we couldn't have dreamed possible because we pray. And do I, I don't really quite fully understand all of that. There is a mysterious element to prayer, but Scripture teaches that, and we've seen it throughout the history of God's people. There is something that goes on, something that can happen that when we pray. But the purpose of prayer is not just that God would do something about what's out there. One of the most important dynamics of prayer is what God wants to do in here. It's not just about what we're praying for, but it's about we who pray. When I look at this story of Jesus praying in the garden, there are a lot of things about this story that surprise me. And um, make me think. One of those things is that here is the Son of God in agony and pain and tears, pouring his heart out to God and saying, This is what I want. And his prayer isn't answered. Jesus comes to this moment and says, Father, if I could could get out of this, would that be okay? Jesus is not saying, I don't want to be the savior of the world. That's been the plan from the beginning. He comes to do that. But as he nears... The, the pain, the physical pain, the emotional pain, and more than anything, the spiritual pain of taking upon himself the guilt and the shame of the sins of the world. He comes to this crisis moment and he's saying, Father, isn't there another way to accomplish what we want to accomplish together without going through that? And ultimately, the Father says no. And I think, wow, that, that's pretty amazing when you think of it. But underlying this prayer of Jesus is not just the words that he says. It's the attitude in which he says them. See, sometimes when we are asking God to do things, we can become, we can move from faith 
and courage in our prayers, which we ought to pray with faith and courage, we can move from that mindset to an attitude of demanding from God that he do what we want. And what ends up happening is in prayer, and this is one of the things that we can easily get confused about, is we become the ones who control what happens about our prayers. We're trying to control God. We're saying, God, I know best, so I need you to do what I want. And Jesus comes to this moment of prayer, brutally honest, telling the Father exactly what he's thinking, exactly what he's feeling, exactly what he wants to see happen. And then he says one of the most profound things in this whole section. He says, Father, not what I want, but what you want. Now, I've, I've seen people use that prayer as um, sort of, I guess I would call it an escape clause to the way we pray. You know, we, we pray these bold prayers for God to do something, and then we tack those words on the end so that if God doesn't do what we are asking him to do, we don't look bad. But that's not what Jesus is doing. This is not an escape clause for Jesus. This is not a, a, a just sort of a way to get out of risking his prayer. This is really describing the attitude of Jesus as he comes to this hour of prayer. And his attitude is, Father, this is what I want. This is what I'm asking of you. This is my prayer, the desire of my heart. But the foundation of this prayer, underlying everything about this prayer, is this mindset, this attitude of surrender, relinquishment. And I'm convinced that until we have that foundation to our prayers, we'll never truly pray the way God calls us to pray. Without that foundation, our prayers will be, in, will be attempts to manipulate God. Our prayers will be attempts to control God. Without that attitude, I don't think we'll pray courageous, risk-filled prayers. And Jesus in the garden prays courageously, honestly, openly, boldly, but in an attitude of surrender and relinquishment. I think one of the reasons we struggle with that, with praying in that mindset, is because we struggle to live in that mindset. Because the minute you start talking about surrender and relinquishment... Then you start talking about things like giving up my rights. Giving up, perhaps giving up the easy life that I want. Giving up the comfort that I've come to to appreciate and what I desire. But this is the call of God in our lives. I've come to the place where I'm pretty sure whenever I hear, I mean, it comes to my mind, every time I hear people talk about Christian rights, one of the first things that comes to my mind is, I I think that's an oxymoron. I'm not sure you can live as a follower of Jesus and keep claiming our rights. Because the, the, the whole point of being a follower of Jesus is surrendering our rights. Surrendering ourselves to him, giving up our rights, becoming vulnerable. It's at the heart of the kinds of responses that Jesus calls his disciples to give toward people who persecute us and who oppose us. And, you know, he talks about compassion and love and grace and patience And all the while we're being called to that, what do we want to do? We want to do the exact opposite. 
because that's our right. As I was pondering kind of my own life and this this call, this, this image of Jesus about the prayer of surrender and relinquishment, my mind went back to many years ago and sensing God's call on my life to Christian ministry. I've told, some of you have heard me say this before, that, you know, I I grew up in a family that was, I mean, pretty much all Christian and pretty much all ministers. Uh, You know, it's kind of the family business. Um, And I think I was the 11th person in my family to become a pastor. And... When I was young, people would say to me, so you're going to be a pastor like your dad? And I would smile on the outside and kind of go, I don't know. But inside I was saying, are you out of your mind? That's the last thing I want to do. It's not that I don't want to be a Christian. Because I, oh, you know, growing up in the church, you know the alternative to being a Christian is not so great. So you want to be a Christian. But I don't want to be that much of a Christian. I kind of want weekends off. I think that would be nice. And I mean, I knew all the stuff about being in ministry. I understood all the things that were related to it. And it's not what I wanted to do. I don't want to be that committed to God. And yet I knew in the back of my mind, there was this prompting, there was this nudging that this is what you need to do. This is my call in your life. And so I spent the first year and a half of time while I was in college and God worked out the details of me to get to a the right college, but I worked a year and a half fighting that. For a year and a half, I was just, my major was undeclared because I couldn't quite figure out anything else to do. Now, I had some professors who helped me understand that these were things that I was not supposed to do. Uh, You know, I remember one saying, look, you don't want to be an accountant. Nobody wants you to be an accountant, believe me. That is not what God is calling you to do. And there were lots of other things. I kept trying this class, that class, thinking I could do this, I could do that. And all of them kept falling short. And I knew in the back of my mind why those things were falling short. And I could have done those things and, and, and other people were doing those things because that was where God was leading them. And that was awesome for them. But I knew what God was saying about me. And I still remember the morning kneeling at the couch in the apartment where I lived and finally saying, Lord, I'm tired of fighting with you about this. Okay, I surrender. And as soon as the offices opened to the college, I went down and declared my major. And I have never regretted that decision. It's not always been easy. It's not, all, it been, it's not that there haven't been times where I've thought there are other things that would be easier to do sometimes. But I've known in my spirit from that moment that was the right thing. That was what God was leading me to do. And there was this huge freedom that came with that. And, and the, the surrendering to God wasn't this sense of I surrender as if he's putting handcuffs on me. And limiting my life. The moment I surrendered. The moment I relinquished. The moment I prayed that prayer of relinquishment. The chains were taken off. I was set free. Now. I wasn't living in misery. Fighting God. Now I was free. And and I was filled with joy and peace. Because I was doing what God wanted me to do. And that scenario has been repeated in a variety of ways and times through the years since then. And I suspect it will continue to be. Because there's always stuff in my life. Like there's always stuff in your life. That we need to surrender to God. And often it has to do with our prayers. God fix this. God do this. God do that. And he loves us to pray those things. We need to pray honestly and boldly and courageously. But underlying that is this sense of, Lord, I believe 
despite what I think, you know best. It's a choice that God gives us. It's always a choice. Jesus isn't forced to go to the cross. He isn't in the garden praying this prayer with God holding his arm pinned behind his back saying, you're going to do this or else. Jesus makes a free choice. And you and I are given a free choice. And the choice is really rooted in this mindset of, do we believe that surrendering and relinquishing our lives, our prayers, whatever it is we're wrestling with to God, is the best thing to do? And we will only believe it's the best thing to do if we believe that God always wants what's best for us. It comes back to the beginning of this prayer when Jesus starts and says, Abba, Father. And those words set the tone for everything else he prays. Because until we believe that God is for us, until we believe that God is good, we're never going to surrender. Because we're going to believe we know better than he does and that we, are, that we, look, we can look out for ourselves better than he can because somewhere deep inside of us, we have come to believe that we know what is good and best, better than God does. We have believed the false idea that God really isn't looking out for us. We're sort of like the children who want to play in the street and get angry when their parents drag them off the street, punish them for playing in the street, and yell at them for playing in the street and feel like you just never want me to have any fun. We think we know best. And until we come to believe that our parents know more than we do and really are looking out for what's best for us, we'll probably keep running back playing in the street. And our Father loves us. Everything He calls us to Everything he's asking of us is only because it will lead us to the very best life possible. It will lead us to what he created us to be and to live in the fullness of what he created us to be. Only in him can we know what it means to live fully as human beings that he created us to be. And the, the wrestling that we do and the struggling and, the, and the, the way that we live and pray so obstinately to God is not leading us to fulfillment. It's closing the door on fulfillment. At some point, we have to come to believe that God is good, even though God is demanding, and he is. God is demanding, He demands our lives from us. But not as a tyrant demands, but as a loving parent demands. As a loving parent does what is best. As a loving parent leads us to what is best. Looking out for us in a way that we can't look out for ourselves. And ultimately, it comes back to as we pray, as we live, do we trust God or do we not? Richard Foster tells in one of his books a story about a friend of his who lived in in another city a fair ways away who kept asking him to come and do a, a retreat for her and some of her co-workers about the, the prayer of the inner life. 
And he kept refusing to do it because he said, you know, he knew the town she lived in. There were people there who were well qualified to do it, and he just really didn't want to. But she kept after him and kept after him. And finally, after one of their conversations, he said to her, okay, look, let's do this. Let's make me coming a matter of prayer. You go home, don't say anything to anyone but God. And if you have, within the next week or so, six people who talk to you about doing this kind of event, then I'll come. And he said, now, you didn't understand. He said, I, I wasn't trying to really test the mind of God. I was just figuring there wouldn't be six people who would be interested. And so I guess just get out of it. So she called me a week later and said, I haven't said a word to anyone but God, and I've had 12 people talk to me about this. I said, okay. I was, he said, I was stuck, so I'll, I'll come. He got there. They met at this, uh, this friend's home. There were 15 social workers that she worked with who were there. And the first night they met together, a gentleman in the group said to them, Look, I, I just want you to know, I wanted to ask you to go easy on me because I'm, I'm not one of you. And that was his way of saying, I'm, I'm not a believer. And the group was very gracious to him. Pastor says that over the course of that weekend, they really sensed the spirit of God coming upon them. And they had some really precious times together. And so much so that when Sunday afternoon came and they were sitting around in the group... That same gentleman said to them, I'm wondering if you would pray for me so that I might know Jesus the way you guys know Jesus. So they all sort of sat there in silence for a moment, trying to figure out what would be the best way to respond to him. And finally, Another man got up and he walked over to him and he put his hands on his shoulders and began to pray. And Foster says it was one of the most profound prayers he's ever heard. It was one of those holy moments. I said, what was so interesting is that the guy prayed a television commercial. He began to describe one of those Nestle commercials where the people are, are out in the sweltering heat Sweat pouring off of them. And they pick up an ice cold glass of Nestle and they lean back and begin to drink it. And as they're drinking it, they fall back into a swimming pool of water. And as they hit the water, you hear this sound. And he began to pray that this gentleman would fall back into the arms of Jesus like that. And as he prayed, this man began to weep and sob and release his life to Jesus. And he told them later that that image tapped into his mind all the way back to his baptism as a child. And he was changed. And Foster says... That to him is the most profound image of this prayer of surrender and relinquishment. Of of living in such a way that we're just falling back into the arms of our loving, gracious, heavenly father. And that's what this table is about. We we come to this table and it, and it speaks grace to us and it speaks mercy to us. And it is a table of surrender. Because it reminds us, it brings us back to the garden as Jesus prays, Father, not my will, but yours be done. And because of that prayer, Jesus willingly, lovingly goes to the cross. And because Jesus goes to the cross, you and I are here. You and I can be set free. And as we come to this table, we are in a sense relinquishing ourselves to the one who relinquished all that he was for us. I guess the one thing I would say to us this morning, and I'm reminding myself of this, is that as frightening and as apprehensive as we may feel 
about surrendering a prayer, a need, a burden, our lives to the Father. It's always safe. It's always safe. When we fall back, he always catches us. It doesn't mean life will be easy. It doesn't mean that we won't face difficulties. But it does mean that our Father is always with us. Our Father always, always does what is best for us. And surrendering to him is surrendering to what is best for us. So as we prepare to come to this table this morning, I'm going to take just a couple of moments of time to, for silent meditation. If there's something you know in your heart you need to surrender to God. What a great moment to do it today. And to know the joy and the peace and the release of falling into the arms of our loving Heavenly Father. Father, thank you for loving us with an everlasting love. Thank you for, for loving us so much, caring about us so much, that even when we fight with you and struggle with you and, and disbelieve the truth about you, you don't give up on us. You always want what is best for us. Help us to see that more clearly this morning. And give us grace to surrender to you. Whatever the burden may be. We thank you, Father, for, for the love of Christ. And as we come to this table, we pray that you will pour out the abundance of your blessing on the bread and the cup. That as we eat and drink, we may know the power of your spirit in us. We may know the freedom of your spirit in us. And we may experience, perhaps in a new way, the depths of your love for us. That you are good and trustworthy faithful always we pray this through Christ Jesus amen on the night that Jesus was betrayed he took bread he gave thanks to the father in heaven and he broke it and he gave it to his disciples saying take eat this is my body which is broken for you do this in remembrance of me. And on the same night, he took the cup. Again, he gave thanks to the Father in heaven and gave it to his disciples, saying, Drink from this, all of you. For this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for your sins and the sins of all people. Every time you do this, do it in remembrance of me. This morning, we are receiving communion by the mode of intention, which means to dip in. As you're released by rose, come to the front, tear off a piece of bread, dip it into the cup, eat it. 
and then return to your seat by the outside aisles. Altar is always open if you want to stay and pray. If coming to the front is difficult for you or if you simply prefer, we have uh, trays of bread and cups. We're happy to serve you in your seat. Just let the usher know as your row is released. And I have gluten-free wafers here in cups as well. Just let me know as you come forward if you would like those. I always like to mention that we practice open communion at the Wesleyan Church. might be the first time you've ever worshipped here, but if you come today with your heart open to Christ, with the desire to surrender yourself to Him, then come, receive these gifts from our gracious, loving, Heavenly Father. Wondrous love is this, oh my soul, what wondrous love is this, oh my soul, what wondrous love is this, that caused the Lord of bliss to bear the dreadful curse for my soul, to bear the dreadful curse for my soul. Wondrous love is this, oh my soul, what wondrous love is this, oh my soul, what wondrous love is this, that caused the Lord of life to lay aside his crown for my soul, to
Take all I am, Lord, and all that I cling to. You are my Savior, I owe everything to. Take all the treasures that lie in my storehouse. They cannot follow when I enter your house. So bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you, be gracious unto you. May the Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. Amen.